All right, because of time, I'm going to move quickly and hopefully get through. We're in a sermon series in the book of Daniel, and so you can turn to Daniel. Um, and this is something that is fairly familiar to even people who were not really raised in church. You think of Daniel in the lion's den and, and, uh, and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it makes us think because of, of the turmoil we read there of war. You know, this last 20 years for the United States, we have heard and thought and talked about and discussed and debated about war consistently. And one of the major sensitive topics of war is prisoners of war because that's our own who have not returned home, who still have the opportunity to. It's one thing to celebrate the life of a warrior who has given the ultimate sacrifice for their nation, but it's another to know that, that you feel helpless with one being held captive. And so there's concern about how they're treated and how they're kept and how long they've been kept. Uh, again, there's all these opinions about what should be done about that. And it's an incredible stress and strain on the family and loved ones. Being away from family, not knowing what's happening to them, and them not knowing what's happening at home to their family. And this series that we've started, uh, actually week before last, we had our missionaries that came last week, and I kind of did an opener, knowing we'd have that break, I did an opening sermon to the series. This is really the first part where we get in more in depth. But there's four of the most, or the more famous figures in the Bible uh, along with a group of their countrymen who are prisoners of war. Uh, they aren't held for a few months or even a few years. They've been prisoners of war for over 70 years. And, so, and these are young men too. So this is some of the youth. The, this is very much what uh, it would feel like for a mother to have her, her teen or her young 20-something in the military and be captured by the enemy. And so many of you are probably familiar with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the book of Daniel, it's a story of these guys and their captivity and some amazing things that happened to them in Babylon, which is our modern-day Iraq. And this is the place they're being held captive. So just like it's not that great of a place to be today, it wasn't a good place to be then for the people of God. But it's a story of, of character, of consistency, of courage. But our, our title for today, and, and you're going to get explanation through it, is your synonymous name. Your sin ominous name. See, this is a story of constant courage, but more so about where sin can take the people of God in such a short time. For over 70 years, these guys stay true and faithful to God and His plan for their lives. But they're paying the cost because guess why they're taken captive? Because it's another one of those times that the children of God are being punished because of the sin of the people. And often, sometimes, the church as a whole pays for the sin of a few. If some of you were to go off your rocker and go out here and do like Westboro Baptist Church and start uh, slewing hate to all the unbelievers out here in the name of New Song before we are able to pounce on you and tape your mouth, then, then um, you could really bring destruction to everything that's going out on that property. It doesn't take much. I can tell you that when I, became, when I came into this church, I was like, man, this is the most drama-free church there is. This is awesome. Pastor Jim, he's fun-loving. Everybody loves him. We don't have a problem one. Pastor Roger came. I was like, still a drama-free church. And then all of a sudden, you know, because I got closer to Pastor Roger, I was close to Pastor Jim, then when people didn't like something, they'd come and tell Jen and I. And it took us a little bit to start realizing you don't listen to those things. You tell people, if you can't go talk to the pastor yourself, then you need to shut your trap, you know? 
And, and so we made some mistakes. I did. I won't put it on Jen. I made some mistakes with Pastor Roger. I had to apologize more and more after I became pastor here. I'd call him and apologize for the different things. I'd go through something. I'd say, Pastor Roger, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize you'll never, you never know these things until you're pastor. You don't know how pastors get hurt until you're a pastor. You can think you know, but you don't. And just like a mother, a mother is the only one that knows how a mother gets hurt. But this story, 70 years, captivity. And so as we study with their stories, we, we will discover together some key principles for our own lives about how sin impacts us. Now, now listen, I've thought before, I'm like, Lord, give me some positive topics to preach on. Give me something that's just going to be a pick-me-up for the people and they're going to all smile and everybody be dancing in the streets as they walk out and say, new song is just so encouraging. But you keep giving me these sermons where I have to step on people's toes and I know how it feels to have toes that hurt. So let me set the stage for you, those of you who weren't here a week from yesterday, a week from last Sunday, um, a week ago. Uh, it's been a few days, so some of you that were here may not remember how the stage was set. But the king of Judah was Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim inherited the throne from his father, King Josiah. And I'm going to move a little quick through this introductory stuff, okay? But Josiah had come to power in a difficult time when the entire nation was worshiping false idols. It's like now when we're being challenged, the Christian faith is being challenged by the Muslim faith and people are wanting to see, they say they want us to all be accepting, but really what it is, there's a push for us to become Muslim. And so, so this is a similar time we should relate to this. This is a time when you shouldn't say the Bible's hard to understand because these people are dealing with much greater than what we are, but, but something similar. And in fact, uh, they had built these places called the high places, these altars where they offered sacrifices to various gods, and, and the high places were horrible places of pagan worship and sexual sin. There's one thing for sure, if people get swept into a cult where especially there's sexual sin and some weird things, you know, it, it's a gradual fade into that, and then once they get there, you hear when they finally, if they get delivered from it, they talk about how, wow, all of a sudden they realize what they're involved with and how dark and how sinister it was. And so... They had these high places that was you know, sexual sin and pagan worship and all this stuff going on. And King Josiah tore down the high places. So G King Josiah that came along, he destroyed the altars of the false gods and declared that God alone was God. And as a result, Judah was blessed. And so story after story, he, he gets rid of the pagan gods and God says, okay, that's what I want. And the blessings come. So as a result, Judah was blessed. They had a peace with their enemies and a time of great prosperity. And then Jehoiakim was just a boy when it all happened. And he saw his father take a stand for God. And he saw God honor the righteous of his father. So, so Jehoiakim, uh, as he sees Josiah, and I might have the way I said that turned it, but when he sees Josiah, he sees these things have gone through and how it, it can turn around. And we don't know why, but Jehoiakim decides to go back to the false gods and turn his back on the one true God. And I'm not as puzzled as maybe some, because I was a pastor's son, raised in a good, solid Christian home, a good influence by my parents, didn't see them argue. There wasn't domestic violence in the home. There wasn't anything you know, bad in our home. And yet, after I got a little freedom and left for college, I ran from what I knew too, and I had some false gods. But he sees all this. We don't know why he turns, but this roller coaster ride for the people. I mean, good king, bad king. 
bad worship, good worship, and it's back and forth, and God honored, and then and living in blessing, and then it's bad king again, and King Jehoiakim, and bad things happening, and then God's discipline. And it's just confusing. It's confusing. It's like if you've ever been in a church, and hopefully you haven't, where uh, they get they get off uh, off their the doctrine, and they go a different way, and 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 then church splits happen, or turmoil, or fussing and fighting, and you're like, how do we get here from people who came to come learn the word of God and know God? And at this time, then Nebuchadnezzar, and he's king in Babylon, the modern day Iraq. King Nebuchadnezzar recognizes an opportunity. I mean, God's people are all over the place. You know, it's like you don't know who they're going to worship next. And then, you know, they got turmoil and then and things going good and it's just back and forth. The people of Judah are confused. Who do we worship anymore? Who do we serve? What's right? What's wrong? Same thing we're being challenged with in our society today is all the Bible-believing people are just astonished. How can people start questioning what the Word of God says about homosexuality? Why, how can we start questioning about what the Word of God says about this, about that? Well, listen, we've, we've, the church itself has turned so many times different ways and been all over the place in their beliefs and their doctrines, and we've got so many denominations and churches uh, disagreeing with others and not wanting to be in fellowship with others, and so our culture's confused as well. So Nebuchadnezzar sees at the moment. He invades Jerusalem and conquers a city. Nebuchadnezzar, the wicked king, gives us a picture of sin and how it operates. So if we look at this story and the actions of Nebuchadnezzar, we learn about Satan's strategy to target our lives with sin. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Now, God would not deliver the United States into the enemy's hand, would he, to get the church's attention? He wouldn't do that, would he? His character and nature never changes. You can pray till you're blue in the face against God's will, and God's will is going to be done. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and, uh, and put in the treasure house of his God. Takes the things of God and puts it in the house of a false God. Here's the first thing that sin, how sin impacts us. Uh, there's going to be five, but the first one is sin seizes the moments of uncertainty. Sin seizes the moments of uncertainty. This is why I am so much more, even more than I've ever been before. And listen, I can tell you if I didn't have this boot on, I might walk across the top of these chairs if it got your attention on this. But if you let yourself, in a time of confusion, in a time when you don't know which one is up, if you let yourself be drifted away from the body of believers, you're opening up the door for Satan to just kick your tail. If you don't run to the body in those times, then you are inviting the devil to have his way with you. Now we could go through many scriptures. We talk about the roaring lion and devil is waiting to kill stone. We could go through all that. It, it's something we say all the time and it's true. Satan takes advantage of bad circumstances. He's not stupid. Listen, when I was in the Navy, I got the big idea that, hey, you know, I've never, 
really gone to the bars and stuff like that, and I'm with a bunch of guys. That's, all, that's what they're doing every weekend. And I started out just going down there to give them rides when they're drunk and going into Tijuana. Before that, I had a calling to Spanish-speaking people, and so I thought, man, that'd be cool. I'll see Mexico. Tijuana is not Mexico. It's in Mexico, but it is not Mexico. It's a, it's a different place. And so I go down there, but then I get the wise idea. One night, I'm going to go ahead and get me some money. You know, I didn't take money down there, really, because I didn't want it to get stolen, and I wasn't there for that. But I thought, I'm going to go ahead, and I'm going to drink a little. And so I go down to this dark alley and turn and find a bank and go to put my ATM card in there. I put my ATM card in, and I'm trying, I can't get the machine to work. And I try it again, it pops out, put it in, try it again. Third time, now keep in mind, I did not pay attention that the light had, it was out in that little glassed-in ATM place up next to a building. And I couldn't see every corner of that room. And the third time that car came out, somebody slammed in the back of me, and my head hit the ATM, and I, boom, and my first reaction is reach for my card, and my card was still there. I was like, and they ran out the door. I was like, what was that about? Felt, still had my wallet. I'm okay. So I pull the ATM card out and look, and it's not mine. They had flipped it and switched it that quick. They were looking for an opportunity for someone who was not using good judgment, that was in a place that was unfamiliar, that was using a machine that they had not used before, that they had somehow rigged or knew or it was already broken, and they were laying in wait. And sin and Satan takes advantage of bad circumstances. He's not stupid. He knows when you're confused. He knows when you're frustrated. He knows when you're making bad decisions, and he'll be there waiting to trip you up. You're the most susceptible when there's confusion, when you're frustrated, when you're mad, when you're tired. You know, I've, I've put a lot of thought into this, and I'm, I'm going to be careful saying this because I'm really owning up here in front of our MAPS volunteers, but i do real, not real proud of sometimes my attitude on the job site so far because I've let myself go too long, too tired, and I get out there, and instead of praising Jesus, just thinking that, thankful that things are going on, I'm looking at all the problems that we got to get this done, we got to do this, we got to do that. And I think I'm managing God's project, you know, so I'm, I'm doing it my way. And, and I'm too tired. I should have listened to the voice of reason and go home early enough to rest and be in my right mind because when I'm frustrated, when I'm tired, Satan's going to seize that opportunity. Amen. Amen. I'll remind you of that when I see it. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Me and Brother Ash have been talking for a while through Facebook and stuff, and so I know his heart, and I, we, I think I can tease you, and he won't whip me. Um, yeah. But listen to this. When you're struggling in your marriage and you and your wife or your husband have a big argument right before you leave out of town to go on that business trip, inevitably those are the days when opportunity presents itself, when temptation is most strong, a co-worker comes on to you, a, or you're flipping channels on the TV and those pornographic images come up and for a moment you think, I'll just get my satisfaction, I'll get my, I'll get what my needs met through someone else because she or he doesn't really care. It's no coincidence that, that coincidence that happens when you're already frustrated with your husband or wife. And that's the way Satan works. He sees an opportunity in the midst of your uncertainty and he attacks. Billy Graham, that's what's been known about him, that when he traveled before he got to a hotel, one deciding factor where he'd stay is if they'd remove the TV from his room before he got there or not. He didn't want it in there. You know, whether it was people questioning what he might be watching or just not having the temptation, but he, he knew to remove the temptations. B. 
because I can't imagine the stress he had coming in with those big crusades and what everybody expected out of him. Things are tight financially and you're concerned how you're going to make payroll this week or how you'll pay the bills and there's money going out more than coming in and you're desperate so you're no clue, no clue how your business is going to survive so an opportunity presents itself to get out of the hole let you survive another month and so no one will ever know, no one will get hurt, maybe you'll just claim a few extra deductions and get a bigger refund or don't declare that extra income. There's no paper trail and no way the IRS can catch you. It's like the people I worked with Walmart that run a side business from the business computer at work when the boss would come and buy. Or maybe you can just adjust one account and pocket a few hundred dollars for, for yourself. No one will ever know. But that's how Satan works. When you're uncertain, he presents an opportunity. In a moment of weakness, Satan attacks. Man, if we just took, if we could just take and put all the sermons from the last couple years up on a board and, and, and put the strong points of each sermon and start taking uh, ribbons or, or, or strings like they do on a, a map and start drawing correlations between God is speaking to us saying, you got to understand that Satan is on the attack now more than ever in our culture. And the church, if it's going to survive, you have to be aware of the enemy's schemes. Amen. And not just aware, but ready to do something about it. Another relationship fails. You ask yourself if you'll ever find someone. Maybe you're lonely and if I'll ever be happy and if I'll ever get married. I run into this quite a bit, especially the guys that I, I may talk with who, who uh, maybe they're single and they've got an addiction and, and they're thinking, you know, hey, I'll just go find, I need to find somebody. That fixed my problems. Or I'll move and that'll fix my problems. Or I'll do this and that'll fix my problems. And they keep looking to fill some, to fill that spot that God wants to fill instead of just letting God be their all. It's always something. And so, they go after that relationship and they make too quick of a decision and before you know it, they're looking at divorce or turmoil. you got to be careful. You are never more vulnerable than when you're uncertain. Satan wants to trap you in an unhealthy, even sinful relationship. He, he sees an opportunity in your uncertainty. And some of you know the story and that's exactly what happened to me in Bible college. The next thing you know, I'm packing my bags and gone and then I can't take all the love that the church is pouring into me because I'm shamed by my sin whether people know it or not and I stay with Jim and Jimmy in, in Broken Arrow and their church is loving on me and I just can't take all of God's love from his people and I do just what I tell other guys not to do now is I ran to the Navy and that's when Satan looks to strike Tijuana sure I have a call to Spanish-speaking people. Maybe that would jar my memory. Even though I'm going around the bars and guys drinking, surely that environment won't affect me. I'm too strong for that because I went to Bible college and now I'm here. I know God's Word, so surely nothing can impact me because I know God's Word. What do you do when you're in that moment or a season of uncertainty? Put your guard up. Be careful. Remember God's Word. If you study God's Word, it'll come back to you at the time that you need it most. Like put on the full armor of God and you start going through uh, all the different meanings of the armor of God and you realize His Word is challenging you to gird yourself up, to protect yourself with that shield, to be ready. Recognize sin for what it is. Don't take short shortcuts. Don't compromise. When life is uncertain, God isn't. 
His word doesn't change. Be cautious. Some, our, our greatest enemy sometimes really is ourself before it's Satan because our self tells us that we really don't need people as much as we really do. We don't need the people God's put around us as much as we really do. When we go into verse 3 of this first chapter, then the king ordered uh, Aspenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Four young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. You know when I was on a youth group, we'd watch those silly Christian films, and there's always that perfect jock guy in school. All the girls liked him and everything. And then they'd make that guy the Christian and show how you know he'd have temptations and all. And I'm thinking, yeah, show the nerdy guy like me that's pear-shaped and doesn't have a lot of friends. And show him how he deals with all the depression of not being part of the popular group. But they never showed that. No, you know? um, but here's these guys. They, they've got everything going for them, really. They're, they're God's guys, that, but, but they're in captivity, but they're without blemish. And he, this, uh, this uh, um, chief of the court was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. They're grooming these guys to make them their own force to be reckoned with. They're taking the best of their enemies that they've captured and indoctrinating them. Nebuchadnezzar selects the best of the best. Young men who are cream of the crop. He, he brings them to Babylon. And the goal is to brainwash them to serve him for Nebuchadnezzar to be their new god. Then ultimately he will select some of those guys to be rulers over the territories he's captured. He's got a pretty brilliant strategy. And see, many of you think that, that you can't do anything for God because you feel like Satan's kicking you all over the place. And I always say that's a good indicator that you're probably cream of the crop. Because the evil king, Satan, is trying to keep you captive, indoctrinate you, so he can put you in charge of some of his work. It reminds me of the guy that I roomed with that was a Jehovah's Witness. And in their organization, I didn't know if they called them preachers or what, but, but from his count... Him and the young girl he married were like the up-and-comers in the movement. They were being talked about. That he was really sharp, he was a leader, and he married the girl that was just as sharp and a leader, and, and they were being groomed to really do big things. And so they married because of that, because of what people projected on them. And, and this is a guy who, at one point, his young wife cheats on him, comes to him broken, saying, I cheated on you. He says, well, in a vindictive way, he just says, well, I'm going to go cheat on you. And he goes right out and does it goes and tells the church and they both get excommunicated. So now he, he has no faith, if you will. I mean, that's a cult, but he has no direction. And so he starts a bricklaying company and raises to six figures pretty quick and a whole team. And, and I watched this guy because I was away from the Lord and we were rooming together and he would go out to the bars and people would just collect around him. And, and I couldn't believe just how people would, there's nothing special about him. Uh, I'd ask other girls, they weren't saying he's real handsome or anything. He just had an aura about him, and he just had a way, and people followed him. And I recognized that, man, this is a guy that no matter where he goes, it seems like he's just destined to rise to the top of the ranks. And I recognized that, that there was a spiritual battle over his life because God probably intended that to be the next Billy Graham, but the devil's saying, no, I'm going to get him in charge of all the people I got in the bars in this city and get them to follow suit with him. And that goes back to what I said. God's gifts are so perfect that he doesn't have to take them from you when you disobey with them. They're so perfect that their punishment's built in. If you use it against God, it'll destroy you. Right. And see, Nebuchadnezzar's downfall is he's trying to use 
God's best gifts against God. Nebuchadnezzar starts having these young men reprogrammed. They spent the first years of their life learning God's word and God's ways before they were taken captive. Their textbook was scripture, and now Nebuchadnezzar wants them to learn a new way and a new God, and he wants to change the influence in their life, and that's how sin works. Number two, sin wants me to listen to a different voice. The second one is sin wants me to listen to a different voice. You know, a parent comes to me and says, I don't know what's going on with my kid. He's been a great kid, and all of a sudden, uh, he's like this horrible creature, and I don't even recognize him, and, and what's happened? And my answer is there's some other voice speaking to them. You're either allowing it through their video games, you're allowing it through their friends or their connections, you're allowing some kind of influence, another voice to them. You've got to figure out what that voice is, identify it, and squash it. Parents, you're not being nosy, be nosy. Because it's your kid's spiritual life on the line. And they've heard another voice. I, I, I hate to pick on my boys, but I'm going to. This whole Lego craze, right? So they're watching the Lego movies. And there's always this voice I hear in the background, because I'm not paying attention. I don't care. I could care less about the Lego movie. But they're watching it, and I hear this, I am Ninjago, blah, 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 blah. And I hear this voice, right? And I jokingly always say, that guy needs a throat lozenge. You know, he's got some real phlegm problems, you know, and tease him. But, you know, at some point, I had enough. I said, turn that off. You don't need that horrible voice constantly in your ear. And you know what? We, me and my wife have learned if their attitudes start changing negatively, we can quickly identify there's something we've started to let them watch or do, or there's sometimes kids at church you got to watch out for. Maybe the parents aren't reining their kids in, and your kids, I mean, first couple years I think we we're here, we spent a lot of time just trying to unprogram the things our kids, as pastor's kids, now they seem to get influenced more by the other kids at church. And so you've got to identify what that is. And with love and with God's wisdom, redirect them. Someone is speaking a new message into their life. Someone has gotten influence and is using that. Influence to send them a wrong direction. There's, there's a new friend, a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend. There's a new influence, some other voice. And that's the way sin works. Satan wants to replace the positive godly leaders in your life with negative leaders. Now, I, I, for time's sake, I, I had an illustration. We're not going to take time to do it. But if I was to get one of you up here and have people pushing against you to, to reference what it feels like sometimes when we're just trying to live for God and the world's pushing on us. And if I put three or four people around you, I have these little things to have them all speak at the same time. You need to just find passion in a website if she isn't going to give it to you. Smoking something will help. You have never been able to be faithful before. You have never been successful you know, you go on and on. Your, your best days are behind you. Just relax and have a drink. You need to leave her. And you've got all these voices coming at you. It's no wonder that in a moment of confusion, when you're letting all these voices speak in your life, or you've got these other influences, that Satan's laying in wait. And when he lays a trap and he, and he puts it out there, in your weakness, sometimes we fall for it. It's easy to start speaking negative about your church or your pastor or... Or even about God, about your marriage, about your husband or your wife. I've not been as good at it as I said I would, but a while back I said, if I catch you talking negatively about your spouse, I'm going to stop you and embarrass you in front of others because you're embarrassing them in front of others. If in this church or in a function of the church I hear you 
even if you're trying to joke, but it's just a little out of hand. I've seen that. You know, it's out of hand. And you say negative things about your spouse, I'm going to call you out in front of others because you called them out in front of others. I'm going to say it's wrong and you need to apologize to your spouse. And I might lose you from the church, but at least I point you towards heaven. Those other voices may say, why are you so uptight? Why don't you have some fun? You don't need to listen to that church. You don't need to listen to them. They, they want to control you. And it doesn't seem harmful. It just seems like voices. And teenagers listen to this. You're going to have this now in high school. You're going to have it more so in college. You're going to have professors. It's enemies. We can see it. Those who have lived it and done before, we can see it. Your professors are out to indoctrinate you in the ways of Satan, and they will do it so craftily. They'll start picking and trying to make you think that the way you've been raised is archaic and harmful. And if you allow that voice to speak to you in a moment of weakness when you feel alone and you're away from your parents, you don't have that support structure, and you've got others who are following along and you feel alone, it's real easy when Satan lays that trap to fall for it. Parents will just say again, you need to know who your kids' friends are. You need to be in their business. I see all the time single adults, they're faithful, committed, and serving God. They begin to drift away without warning. And you can count on it. There's a new voice. They're dating someone with a different convictions or found a new group of friends. Sin wants you to listen to a different voice. Quickly, I want to move on. Number three, sin forces me to choose. Sin forces me to choose. Temptation is right in front of you. It's being offered every time you turn around. And we can pick on all the ones that don't fit for y'all, like uh, you want to go to the party and all that stuff. That some of you that are older at work at Walmart is like, yeah, I don't get asked that. Or maybe you do. Maybe it's sit around and make bad jokes about the boss. And speak negatively about your boss. Maybe it's um, the dirty jokes. Maybe it's the, all your divorced friends trying to give you marital advice. And I don't mean that against anybody that's been divorced. I'm just telling you that when I was in the workplace, people who were struggling with marriage, guess who the first ones were there to go tell them how to do it? The ones that were either had just had a divorce or in the middle of one or getting ready to go through and all. It's, it's always misery loves company. It's like, you know, if I want to know how to be burned by a stove, I don't go to the guy that's wearing a big bandage on his hand. Or how not to be burned, I'm sorry. I'm like apparently you don't read the warning signs and so I'm not going to listen to you. Sin forces a choice. You choose God's way or Satan's way. There's no other way. The Bible says you can't do either. You can't do one. You got to do one or the other. You can't do both. For sin offers a future. This one's really treacherous because, yeah, it look it, it, it's wrong. But look what I'm going to get. I've told you people attempt me to lie as a pastor. People don't realize sometimes they're telling their pastor to lie, because it's become such a habit for them in their business dealings. They don't realize they're doing it. I've had it on this job site. I've had people say, well, just tell the inspector this. Or just say this. Or just do this, they'll never know. Or just do this, everybody else does that. Grown people who have businesses, who maybe even affluent, and, and even believers telling me to lie. That's what sin does. It offers you a future without revealing the price. It's so tempting Something for nothing. If Satan revealed the price, you'd never do it. 
If, if he told you that cheating on your spouse would make you lose your home and everything else, if he let you see that, even though you know that if you had the time to stop and think, but you're too caught up in the moment, or rebelling against your parents, or lying on the job, or there's, there's a hundred other examples, but if he really showed you ahead what the price would be for the sin, you'd never do it. Sin offers you a future without revealing the price. It's like timeshares. Go sit for two hours, you get something free. And they smile and wink and treat you good, give you some free dinner or whatever. And I'm sworn by my wife, and I don't, we don't swear over things a lot, but when those people try to sell us something, it's comical. I look at them and I say, if I listen to you, I will not be married anymore. And they look at me like that. I was like, I promise my wife we will not do these anymore. I'll tell you a story another time we have time. But we ended up in a movie-like scene in Belize on our honeymoon being trapped by all these guys with gold chains and hairy chests and their shirts down to here standing like this around a pool where we couldn't leave while we are listening to one of those things because we pulled a little thing out of the hat and we won a thing to go to where they had a Temptation Island. That should have been my clue right there. <laughs> Famous show called Temptation Island and that was the place they filmed it and you can go there. Look like paradise. I'm like, oh yeah. Here I'm a believer. You know my wife. Temptation Island. Honey, let's go there. It's free. <laughs> Actually, I've never said it like that before. Now, I, I think that is pretty funny. <laughs> it's called situational ethics, or the end justifies the means. What I'm doing is wrong, but the result is so good, it's worth it. Let me stop for a minute and tell you this. What the Lord has revealed in my heart is we have folks in our church who this is their issue between them and God right now. And the reason our altars aren't filled with people who are crawling out of God and crying out of God is because we have rationalized and have bartered that relationship with God for things that we think aren't that big a deal. I have people who would tell me, you know what, how long have you been a veteran? Oh, wow, you need to go to the VA and see if they can up your disability. And I say, but I'm not more disabled. Well, but, you know, they'll, if they do that, it's more money. Well, let's go for a sprint because I can still run. I'm not disabled. They give me a check every month. I tried to give it back at one point. They said, no, no, we figured your knee is messed up, you know. That's why you're out of the Navy. Okay, but I just don't feel disabled, you know. But do you take advantages of systems as a believer and somehow in your mind rationalize it because everybody does it? Are you paid your dues? Are you paid your taxes? You know, I had this talk when the boys were being born and I could have only paid about a hundred and some dollars for them to be born and says six thousand dollars out of pocket. But if I had taken advantage of a system, but I knew we could pay for it. And so I did. And listen, I'm going to get off this because this gets sticky because I, there are, such, you know, there's too much to that. But I'm just going to tell you, you know in your heart, okay? It's not CJ trying to convict you. The Holy Spirit will convict you. Are you making decisions in your business, in your life, and in your family where you okay yourself even though there's this little small voice that says that's wrong. And when I was growing up in Sunday school, we used to talk about, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in anger, ready to burn your head right off your shoulders. <laughs> oh, that's not how it goes. Right, right. How's it go then? For the Father up above is, it rhymes with up above, is looking down in love. Because I love my boys. 
And if I lead them astray, then I might as well tie a millstone around my neck and throw myself into the sea. So if I'm going to cheat on my taxes, I need to really think hard about that. If I'm going to cheat on my job, if I'm going to cheat on my church, I'm not talking about stealing money on offering. I'm talking about if God's told you to do something and you're cheating the church because God has told you and you won't do it, then no wonder the altars are not filling up with people calling out to God and revival taking place. And that's not meant to stomp on your toes. I'm just being real with you. God has told me until we are willing to humble ourselves before the Lord and pray for, own, pray for our sins to be forgiven because there's not anybody in here that doesn't have sins. And if we're not being drawn to be forgiven of our sins, then we are lying to ourselves and prideful and we need a good slap in the face by the Holy Spirit to say, you have problems too. After all, I deserve to be happy. Just think of all the money I'll be able to give to God if I do this. Everybody's doing it. What's the big deal? If it feels so good, how can it be wrong? I'll lie and cheat my way to the top, but I'll fix it when I get there. I'll always be able to ask for forgiveness. It's better to ask forgiveness than permission. You've seen your friends do this and make some of the biggest mistakes of their lives, and it looks wrong to you when they do it. But somehow, when it gets to us... It's like a nice fluffy cake. If you just get past all the icing that's hard to choke down, there's some nice fluffy cake under there. I just You've seen your friends do it, and then we do it. You enter into a relationship with the worst people, and they do wrong. They sin. You know where they're going to crash. You know it's coming, and yet you'll do it knowing that you're going to crash. It's interesting. Sin does offer you a future. It's just not the future you think it's going to be. The principle for you and me is consider the price. And again, I need to wrap this up. So sin, number five, sin owes me, owns me. Sin owns me. You say it this way. I don't know how I got here. I never intended for this to happen. I was only going to try it for a moment. Now I can't stop. Listen, one of the biggest strengths I find in my walk with the Lord right now, and I don't claim anything that you just really, you know, is awesome for you, but I'll just tell you this. I own my mistakes. I don't let the, uh, Satan bring it up and, and I don't believe in condemnation and wallowing in our sin, and, you know, past sins. But the thing is, is that I can admit I left Bible college because of sin in my life. God rescued me and I tried to mess it up again. And I can admit when I do things wrong and say, you know what? But God is still here and he still wants me to continue on. Sin will own you. I don't know how I got here. Own up to it. I know how I got here. I sinned. Satan doesn't want to give you a good time. That's not his goal. We often think it is, but it's not. He doesn't want us to have a wonderful future. It's not his agenda. The devil wants to change your name. And this is all the way to the end why the title is your synonymous name. See, sin will try to rename you. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, their names got changed in defiance to their God because their names all referenced the God they served. And it wasn't their sin that got them there. It was the sin of the people, but it was of all the people. And so they are paying for that. And so they got named different names. apologize my my notes just jumped on me often God God has names for his people like 
redeemed. Child of God. And Satan comes along and wants to trap you and wants to change your name to drunk, liar, thief, lonely. And the loneliness is because you separate yourself from everyone he puts in your life that's good for you. Addict, cheat, reject. But God wants to call you his chosen, Colossians 3.12. He wants to call you his beloved, Deuteronomy 33.12. He wants to call you his child, 1 John 3.1. He wants to call you his son or his daughter, 2 Corinthians 6.18. He calls you friend in John 15.15. He calls you saint in Psalms 39.4. He calls you his workmanship in Ephesians 2.10. And he calls you his treasured possession in Deuteronomy 7.6. He calls you his heir in Romans 8.17. He calls you holy and blameless in Ephesians 1.4. He calls you the apple of his eye in Psalm 17, 8. He calls you blessed in Psalm 65, 4. And he calls you redeemed in Ephesians 1, 7. That's your God that loves you, a good heavenly father, a good, good father who doesn't stand there waiting to smite you from the almighty smiter. He wants you to be whole and well, and he wants you to prosper, not necessarily money, but just in your life and serving him. But often sin think it might have been T.D. Jakes, which I don't quote a lot, said, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Now I'm going to tell you, church, this is not a, there's not some format that I'm going to end this. I'm just going to tell you this. We all, me included, there's sin in my life, there's sin in all my life. We need to be on the watch. We need to be on the ready. And we need to be ready to combat against the evil schemes of the enemy. Don't, don't pat yourself on the back and say, well, well, that was just too hard to hear, or I don't want to hear that, or, or that's just not right. I mean, listen to the voice of God. If you've got sin in your life, you've got everything to lose if you keep it, and you've got everything to gain if you get rid of it. Amen. God, take it from me. I'm tired of okaying my, my ways that I know are not really right as a believer. I'm tired of picking the easy path because... That's just how I've always done things. I'm tired of that because I know your path is not easy. Jesus, I just ask right now, Lord, as we come to you, that God, I ask that your words, that your word, Lord, would bury in our hearts. We know that your word says it will not fall to the ground. It, it, will, not, it will not diminish. It will not fall away. But God, we have a choice of whether to let those words bury in our heart and cause change, real, tangible change, or just another message, just another Sunday, and carry on, carrying the burdens that we know don't belong, carrying the sin we know doesn't belong. Right now, if you're here this morning and you say, I, I know that I've got sin in my life, this is a challenge because, hey, I look around in this place when my eyes were open and I see believers and believers and believers. And I know I could tell you if I would have felt it was appropriate, I could tell you that a sin this week that I've had to deal with. So we're all together in one accord that we need to be forgiven our sin. If there's something in your life you need to let go of right now, I pray you come down to this altar and you call out to God and you don't leave this place carrying that sin anymore. That you leave this place breathing fresh air knowing God has taken it from you and that you no longer will carry that sin. That whatever it is that the Holy Spirit may challenge your heart, I pray.
pray you won't leave with it. Jesus, Jesus. Lord, let your Holy Spirit speak to our hearts. and Lord, free us from the sin in our lives. Maybe we've been harsh with our spouse. And we've not repented of that. We've been cynical towards our other believers or towards, towards them. We've, we've been hurtful or we've been complacent in the relationships God's entrusted us with. We've not been a good steward of the things He's put us in charge of. It's all sin. And we've simply separated ourselves from Him in relationship. We've come in name only, but not in relationship with Him. We've come bearing the name of Christ but as Christian, but we know that we don't commune with Him. to it, don't hang on to it, don't hang on to it, don't hang on to it. Jesus, Jesus, we thank you. Praise you. Five, four, he wants to call you blessed. Ephesians 2.10, he wants to call you his workmanship, which means that you're a work in progress. John 15.15, he wants to call you friend. His arm is around you as you take a step of faith and ask him to forgive you for your sins. And he calls you his son or his daughter. 2 Corinthians 6.18, his child, 1 John 3 1. His beloved, Deuteronomy 33 12, calls you chosen, Colossians 3 12. Thank you, Jesus. We pray now, Lord, as we, as we get ready to go out these doors, God, I pray that if the Holy Spirit has convicted anyone of anything, Lord, and they've not left it here at the altar, Lord, they've not left it before you, God, and asked you to, to take it from them, Lord, I pray that. You won't leave them alone about it until, God, until they surrender. That they totally free, be free, Lord, of this sin, God, whatever it is. We thank you, Lord, that we as believers, as a body of believers, this is doing life together. It's, it's confessing before one another our sins, and it's, it's being freed of them. So that we might draw closer to you, Lord. Sanctification, being turned more and more away from sin and closer and closer to you. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.